if we meet alien life out there, will it be microbial life? Will there be a, a, a diverse biosphere like we have here with things that look like plants and animals? And will there be things that appear conscious to us, that appear aware of themselves and maybe even have advanced technologies and can talk to us? Those are big questions. Our future in space, brought to you by Above Space Development Corporation, with your host, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt and Eric Ward. Hello, and welcome to Our Future in Space. Have you ever asked yourself, is anybody out there? And I don't just mean outside your door, I mean out there. Well, today we're going to be talking with Dr. Graham Lau of the Blue Marble Space uh, Organization, who has been asking this question professionally for several years. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt. I'm the Vice President for Science and Research at Orbital Assembly Corporation. And I'm Eric Ward. I'm the VP of Engineering Design at Orbital Assembly. Graham, uh, welcome to our future in space. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi. So I think to start off, maybe we can ask, how are we looking for life out in the solar system right now? Oh, I'm <laughs> um, starting with a huge question um, <laughs> because we're, we're doing it in lots of ways. There, there's lots of things that we're doing right now looking for possible signs of past or present alien life within our solar system, within the universe, within the, the Milky Way around us. Um, some of these, these methods that we can talk about, obviously, uh, here uh, are things like NASA uh, and other space agency missions, uh, things like the Europa Clipper and the Perseverance rover, the upcoming Dragonfly mission. There are lots of missions that we send out to better understand uh, planetary science, the nature of our solar system. Some of those missions include objectives of looking for life, and then some of them are just involved in the process of better understanding the possibilities for, for life out there. But then we also have things, I, I think everyone this past year has been entirely blown away by the beautiful images, as well as some of the data, the spectroscopy coming back from the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST. I mean, those yeah. images, I mean, just, you know, you see them, they floor you, they're so pretty. You know, we've been, you know, you know, had Hubble around since 1990, taking these remarkable pictures, but JWST is really now extending, uh, not just how far back in time that we're looking, but also mm -hmm. how we're looking at other worlds, other stars, nebulae, other galaxies. And there's just so much more that we're learning. And so, you know, we have all these missions, both for looking for things in place or in situ, mm -hmm. uh, looking for mm -hmm. things remotely. And then there's also those of us in the realm of astrobiology who are doing a lot of work here on Earth to better understand mm -hmm. the nature of life and what we're actually looking for. Right. And so when you say uh, here right on Earth, you mean in uh, sort of out there in the field or do you actually mean like in the laboratory? Oh, both. Yeah. In the lab, on computers, doing modeling, uh, in mm -hmm. the field. There's a lot of things that we're doing to better understand the nature of life. When it comes down to it, you know, and this is always kind of shocking to a lot of people, we don't actually know what life is. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, but there's not actually like a set definition of life. If you go online and look up, you know, what is life, you'll find a bunch of different definitions. There's well over 300 have been proposed over time. Um, there's one that's kind of the accepted somewhat definition. It's sometimes called the NASA definition, that life is a self-contained chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. But even that by itself kind of misses out on some of the larger emergent properties of life. And there's a lot of people right now in the realm of astrobiology who are trying to figure out, like, what is life? What does life do? Is life as we know it the only likely type of life? Or could there be other forms of life out there using different chemistries, different metabolic processes, and things like that? 
Yeah, I know that uh, for for decades, people have asked the questions, you know, if there's if there's life out there, is it going to be made of the same atoms? Is it going to use DNA? Is it going to use something else that's self-replicating? But man, to even be sort of still struggling with the basic question of what do we even mean by something being alive, given the, you know, the sophistication of your field, it, it, it seems really surprising. Yeah, indeed. And if you really, really want to bake your noodle, um, not only do we not really know what life is, we don't know what consciousness is. There are a lot of people right now who are studying in the realm of psychology and neuroscience and philosophy, trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be aware of ourselves right now in this time in the cosmos. If we meet alien life out there, will it be microbial life? Will there be a, a, a diverse biosphere like we have here with things that look like plants and animals? And will there be things that appear conscious to us, that appear aware of themselves, and maybe even have advanced technologies and can talk to us? Those are big questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I wanted to dive a little bit into that a, a, a touch more. You mentioned the ways that you're looking for life, right? Out there, you're studying the lab and in the field, different ways of kind of identifying life. And I'm, I'm curious for our listeners and myself, of course, um, what is that? How do you, how do you even do that? You know, it's like, I can go, Oh, that's a squirrel. It's alive. Right. But when you're looking for, you know, this alien life, right. How, where do you mm -hmm. start? What kind of tools do you have? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's this idea, right? Like we'll know life when we see it. Um, you know, there's this idea like the, the, the old definition of, um, I guess I can, can I say it in this show? Um, of hardcore porn from the Supreme Court, there was this decision where mm -hmm. one of the justices said, I don't know it, but I'll know it when I see it. Um, we're kind mm -hmm. of in that same boat in some cases with life, you know, like we know it when we see it, but when it comes to, to things like microbial life that we can't see with our own eyes, we need microscopes, we need diagnostic tools, we need ways to, to understand whether or not there is DNA or RNA present or proteins present, these kinds mm -hmm. of things. And so right. there's a lot of different tools that people use from biochemistry or geochemistry, geophysics, to astrophysics and planetary science, the different things that we'll put on board are rovers, the things that we'll take into space with us to better understand what life is doing. Um, so from my own personal end, I am a geochemist. And so for me, I, you know, if, if I go into the field and I'm trying to understand whether or not there's a living process occurring, you know, the first things I'll be doing is, is looking at the, the chemistry of, of fluid, the chemistry of the soil, uh, the local mineralogy and the rocks present, trying to understand uh, not just geologically what's happening, but biologically, can life be causing some alteration to the environment that we can see? And on our planet, that's everywhere. Everywhere around the Earth that you go, you can see the processes of life affecting our planet. Um, if you were an alien species, you know, maybe 30 light years away watching the Earth, and you were measuring our atmosphere using your own JWST, um, maybe right. you'd be looking at oxygen in our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That oxygen is a byproduct of life itself here on Earth. Yeah. And yeah. so those are the kind of things that we're looking for. How does life impact the environment around it? How does the environment impact life, too? Okay, well, here's a question that just came up for me as you were talking about oxygen that I've been dying to ask an astrobiologist for several years. So that question is, I understand that, you know, why is the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere of our planet important? Well, it's because it's in a chemical disequilibrium. If you stopped all life, the oxygen would mm -hmm. essentially bind with the, the surface metals and it would it would fall in its concentration. But my, right, I mean, you're nodding, so I'm assuming that that's, <laughs> but my question is, but are there non-biological processes that could do that too? In other words, is just the presence mm -hmm. of oxygen 
in an atmosphere enough to say there's definitely life going on here, or is it a more complex story? It's a much more complex story. Um, and it's a great yeah. point. Uh, people like Victoria Meadows um, of the University of Washington and the Virtual Planets Laboratory, people like Sean Domingo Goldman of NASA Goddard, uh, or Eddie Sweeterman of, of University of California Riverside, uh, their laboratories are doing the work on biosignature gases as well as abiosignature gases, things that uh, would show us that life can't be present. Um, but they're also looking at things like, is oxygen a biosignature by itself? Could there be geological or physical processes in an atmosphere or on a world that creates oxygen? And a lot of people are now are wondering, it, it, it seems very likely that oxygen could be free uh, in its molecular state as two oxygen atoms bound together without yeah. life present on other worlds. Now that didn't happen here on earth, but it could be possible yeah. in some other world. So you're, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Uh, what a lot of people are now turning towards is this idea of a disequilibrium between different chemical mm -hmm. species uh, inside the atmosphere of an exoplanet, for instance. Uh, mm -hmm. Would oxygen be present with methane, for instance? Here on Earth, we have methane mm -hmm. in our atmosphere. If there wasn't life present to replenish that methane consistently, the oxygen would react with it so quickly, it would almost instantly in cosmic time just go away. Uh, yeah. And so we can look yeah. for that as well. Uh, another researcher, I had him on my show, Ask an Astrobiologist, fairly recently, Dr. Michael Wong, is right now working on a systems analysis of the different kinds of chemical species we might find in an atmosphere and how we can start maybe identifying the, the fingerprints of possible life signs hmm. based on a range of different chemical species that we might find. Hmm. Well, it just seems hard, though, because, again, not even knowing the basic uh, chemistry of the life forms that might be present, it's going to give very different answers for what those chemical species in the atmosphere, you know, must be. And and I think that was one of our first questions is, like, how has this field evolved over the last, you know, 10 years or, or, or so? Like, what questions were you asking 10 years ago, which we're no longer asking now because our thinking has changed? Yeah, I mean, as much as 10 years, millennia. If we go back, you know, thousands of years ago, like these, these questions, you know, why are we here? Are we alone? Is there something more? Are the stars that we see at night, are, are they other worlds? Are there other things out there? I mean, humans have been, have been asking these questions of ourselves for many thousands of years. And so the tools of science, as we've evolved and developed science over time, and science itself has changed with us, we've definitely changed in our own understanding of what's possible out there. Uh, for instance, in the 1970s, when the Viking landers landed on the surface of Mars and conducted the first uh, astrobiological test to look for life on another planet, the kinds of life that those missions were looking for, the, the four biological experiments they had, were very much biased towards what we knew about life on Earth at that point. Uh, at that point, we, ha we had just barely started discovering organisms that exist in these extreme environments, mm -hmm. like acid mine drainage. And we had only just barely started figuring out that there are hot spots on the ocean floor. Uh, it wasn't until 1977 that we had the first confirmed detection of a hydrothermal vent on the ocean floor. Uh, and so, you know, some of the things we've discovered in the, in the, the decades since the Viking landers has really changed our thinking. Um, and then within the past 10 years, especially, we've learned a lot more um, about information systems, how we can collect things like DNA and RNA, uh, how we can collect proteins in an environment and look for them. Uh, there's been a lot more research into what kinds of features of life should we be looking for. Uh, and so one, one current thing going on is this idea of agnostic biosignatures, uh, signs of life that don't require an origin similar to our own. 
for them mm -hmm. to possibly be signs of life. Uh, and so these might be things like showing chemical disequilibria and showing reactions being catalyzed in an environment where they otherwise shouldn't be happening um, by, by life catalyzing and driving these things forward. Um, there's a lot of things that we want to look for when it comes to looking for life out there. And again, this has been a human question throughout all of known human history, all of recorded history. And we're just now getting to this really kind of groovy point where, honestly, with the James Webb Space Telescope, other upcoming telescopes, upcoming missions, it feels like if there is life out there, it feels that we must be pretty close to having a definitive answer. Well, it seems like there's kind of two, it was probably more than two, but but these two kind of rather different things happening at once. We're, we're getting better about asking more sophisticated questions about mm -hmm. life in our own mm -hmm. solar system, and we actually have the ability to send instruments there. And of course, we can do things remotely with fairly high fidelity because things just aren't that far away. But now we have this kind of gigantic leap in capability where we're able to uh, take spectra and you should define for our listeners who don't know what is a spectrum, you know, of other planets around other stars. And that is not the same kind of uh, technical hurdle at all as, you know, taking a measurement on Europa, for instance. You want to elaborate yeah, on that a bit? Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that we can get spectra from atmospheres of exoplanets is wild. Um, but let's let's kind of go back to first principles here. A spectrum. Okay. Um, what is a spectrum? So so it comes from the word specter, like ghost. Uh, when Isaac Newton was doing his earliest experiments in optics, which is trying to understand light and how our eyes work and how we see things, uh, he was you know, this person who took a candle light, basically, and, and used a prism to show that the, the light from the candle could be broken apart into the colors of the rainbow. And those colors were dancing on his wall like a ghost. And so that was a spectrum. Mm. And so when we, we split light apart, um, we can see this full spectrum of the different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation uh, we humans, we see in the visible uh, range of EM radiation, that's, you know, we, we see Roy G. Biv, the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet of colors, but there's more to that too. There, there's infrared, ultraviolet, and then there's, you know, more extremes like microwaves and gamma rays, mm -hmm. uh, radio waves. But, you know, there's mm -hmm. this huge spectrum of different kinds of radiation that different bodies can emit, different stellar processes can emit out there in the universe. Um, and so when we look at a spectrum, say we look at our sun, um, we can look at the light coming from our sun. We can observe the lines of energy inside of the spectrum of light coming from our sun. And it actually tells us what the sun is made of. Um, helium, for instance, as an element, uh, was first discovered on the sun and not on Earth. We, we actually found helium on a, on a different celestial body first before ever discovering it here on Earth. And it's because of spectroscopy. Spectroscopy yeah. allows us to use the ways that light interacts with other things to tell us about what those things are. Um, for a, a fun little side story, uh, I used to, in my graduate research, I used to use synchrotrons uh, for X-ray spectroscopy. These are large circular particle accelerators. And I was at one out in California at Stanford, and my mother had called me, and I was trying to explain like the what I was doing. She's like, what are you doing there? And I gave her like this really crazy high-end physics explanation of X-ray production. <laughs> And she called my wife right afterwards. She's like, I have no idea what Graham just said. What is Graham doing? And my wife is like, he's shooting light at rocks. And when the light comes back, it tells him what the rocks are. And that was one of the best descriptions of spectroscopy I've ever heard. And yeah. my wife was so gracious to give that to my mother. She could understand what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to things like these atmospheres of exoplanets, 
I mean, this is this is wild. This is a world not only millions of miles away, billions, trillions of miles away. I mean, this, these worlds are so far away. They're light years away. It takes light a minimum of 4.2 years to get to us for the closest stars. But further than that, we're looking at tens or even hundreds of light years for these exoplanets that we're looking at. And what we're doing, as that planet comes around and starts to transit in front of its star, the light from the star shooting down through the planet goes through that little wisp, the outer edge of atmosphere, before the, the planet blocks the sunlight. And we actually, by, by measuring the difference in the spectrum of that light coming through the atmosphere compared to the star, we can tell the chemistry of those atmospheres. Absolutely I knew wild. that. Yeah. I didn't realize just how like high performance that measurement was because you're talking about just a few seconds or minutes uh, of opportunity before you know that gets that gets uh, drowned yeah. out by yeah the planet itself and so on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, hats off to NASA and uh, and and everybody else, right? ESA uh, mm -hmm. and JAXA and everybody else who was a, a partner in that. Yeah, and, and if you look at JWST, I mean, there's a huge collaboration. Lots of people have been involved in the, the design, development, the launch operations of this telescope. You know, when I, when I first started graduate school in 2011, you know, I had friends who were starting graduate school. The whole point of their PhD was going to be, you know, J, JWST will launch, I'll have data, and then I'll analyze those data looking for new signs of life. Many of those people have long since finished their PhDs and, and have been yeah. professors for many years now. And, and now we're just getting those data. It's taken so long. And, and yet the, the payoff has been superb. All right. Well, we have a lot more to ask you. It might just bounce around a little bit, but are you ready, Eric? You have one? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you, you, know, you just talked about we're, we're finally getting data in from JWST, you know, and it's like I have the background on my on my computer is one of the first images that, you know, we got, of course. And it's been fascinating to watch things like the comparison of some of the Hubble images and the same regions, you know, uh, 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 photographed by the JWST. But, you know, in terms of astrobiology, you know, what kind of what kind of results are we getting? I mean, you talked a little bit about what, you know, what's the science is doing, what we're collecting, but you know, do we have, you know, anything interesting to share from from JWST yet? So yes, um, I, I will say I, I do know for a fact that they they have already been observing things like the TRAPPIST-1 system. Mm -hmm. um, for the viewers who might know of that, TRAPPIST-1 is a, a, a stellar system. We know it has at least seven planets. There are three that are within the Goldilocks zone for liquid water around the star. That means that they're in an orbital region where there could be liquid water at the surface based solely on the orbital uh, dynamics. Um, things like atmospheres can change that a lot, but it does mean mm -hmm. that there could be liquid oceans. And I, I know that there's a few researchers uh, who already have some data. They haven't released it yet. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens when that gets released. But of the images and data that's already come out, there are some things that are very relevant to astrobiology. You know, when we're, we're trying to understand the nature of life, we're not just looking for just signs of life. We also have to understand, you know, the environment out there. You know, how are stars born? How do planets, how are planets formed? Um, you know, is there going to be differences in the kinds of life we can expect based on the different chemistry of a planet based on the star that it forms around? Um, it could be possible that planets that are forming right now around stars have a much different chemistry than our Earth had over time. Maybe some of those planets will favor uh, origins and evolution of life even more than our world did. Uh, some researchers have suggested this could be a super habitable planet 
one where life just takes off like crazy because of the chemistry of the world. Uh, Can you give these images of like nebulae and stellar birth, planetary formation? Those things are also very relevant to astrobiology. And then one thing, um, and I forget the name of the exoplanet right now offhand. I'm sure someone watching can, can Google this for us. Um, uh, that we had the very first detection of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. Uh, that was a really, really big advancement for the science of understanding the chemistry of atmospheres of other worlds. That world is a hot Jupiter. It's a very large world, highly unlikely to have life as we know it. Um, it's very close to its star, uh, very unlikely to have life. But at the same time, it is very interesting to have this first detection of carbon dioxide, um, to see things like water vapor in another world, and then to see clouds, to have a hint that there could be hazes and clouds. Um, this is just the beginning of the chemistry. One reason I imagine we haven't really seen those data yet that have been recorded from some of these other observations, like looking at TRAPPIST-1, is it takes time to analyze the data, and once they have an idea of what they're looking at in the chemistry, they really have to make sure that they understand their interpretations, um, mm -hmm. they understand what they're seeing before they release it. Um, yeah. And then even once it does get released, I wouldn't be surprised if we, in the very near future, maybe even this year, might have a team, probably a, a large team of people working together using JWST data who think they might have signs of a possible biosignature in an exoplanet. Um, but even if they announce that, I want to always caution the public. Like, Part of our job as scientists is to be skeptical, yeah. to be humble, and to release the data, to release our interpretations, mm -hmm. and then to allow other people to analyze it as well. Um, you might remember a few years ago now the issue with Venusian phosphine. Um, yes. A team using two different telescopes made a really remarkable announcement that they had detected the possible presence of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, phosphine we, we find in Jupiter and Saturn, um, and we, we have ways for it to form. We know chemical ways for it to form without life there, but mm -hmm. on Earth, phosphine only forms through biology. And so the idea was maybe there could be a living process allowing for this phosphine on Venus. Um, but, you know, as scientists, we need to debate this and argue about it and argue with the data. And, you know, and sometimes there's tensions, you know. Um, unfortunately, sometimes there is some name calling and stuff that really shouldn't happen. It really should be about being humble and true to each other. Um, but, you know, we had this issue where people in the public were going back and forth. Like, are they saying it's alien life? Are they not saying it's alien life? They want to know, and yeah, it just we all want to know. It's not definitive, right? Anyway. You know, right. And, uh, I loved like watching the X Files as a kid. I want to believe, right? But I, I really, I want to know. That's the big thing. But you have to go through this process of empiricism, of testing yeah. the data, testing our assumptions, testing our ideas, testing our interpretations, because that's how we then really make huge advancements for humanity in all in all realms, be it aerospace, astrobiology, law, whatever it is. We. we we do this process where we, ha we have to be empirical in our approach. Otherwise, we might uh, fool ourselves into thinking something is there when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm just thinking of an analogy that, you know, it, the invention of flight was an amazing achievement, mm -hmm. right? And it was quickly, it was easy to demonstrate that it was working, right? Because you could go out to Kitty Hawk and you could see it fly. But if somehow that evidence was much more indirect and it's like, well, did we fly or not? And maybe there's just like a few scraps of data and people could be debating it for years. And, yeah. but it matters if, if you could actually do that, it means that there's a whole new mode of transportation and way of looking at the world. And if not, then it's just not, uh, it's just not yeah. reality. And so I think 
it's important that we're sure if, if life is present. Um, and it's, I always find it's interesting. I mean, you know, hats off to the science journalists who don't have an easy job of translating results like that, right? Like it's, it's interesting to publish this paper. Hey, there could be a process on Venus, you know, creating phosphine that is, you know, driven by biology and life. And like, let's discuss, right? But then, you know, a scientific journalist has to take that that paper and and communicate to the general public who, I mean, we want to hear about this, right? But might not have an understanding of like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean there is or there isn't or there could be? And, you know, translating that, I think, is also, you know, an interesting a aspect of it, right? When when you have something like this, like you're saying, Jeff, that isn't just so obvious to see. So, right. Uh, I think that's always interesting, and I, I love it to, when I get to see scientists engaging in the public themselves and kind of, you know, trying to be part of that because uh, that's, you know, that's an important kind of half of this whole conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've, I've always, as myself, I'm, I'm a science communicator as well. I, I love mm -hmm. sharing science with people. You know, one of the greatest things that you can do is, is share what you know with somebody else, and you have a dialogue back and forth, and, and when you realize something, when they realize something and your eyes go wide, you have that moment of interpersonal discovery together, um, which is just remarkable. And it's one reason that I've been drawn to science communication, especially, and especially when you see such great science journalists out there who do a fantastic job of finding really good analogies and, and ways of making some of this more advanced, you know, jargony science language more accessible to everyone. Yeah. 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 It's a huge service because science is advancing quickly and we need to continue to find ways to tell people who don't have this training what it is we're doing. Right. So that we are seen as relevant and trustworthy and also, you know, obviously um, exciting, <laughs> hopefully exciting. <laughs> I mean, you hope to be right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that's maybe the last priority. I mean, you want to be like authentic first, but yeah, hopefully it's exciting once in a while. Um, so I wanted to change, actually, I did have a question about DNA, but then I wanted to kind of shift gears and talk about, let's, let's pull it back to the solar system just for a little while, because I know something that you have brought up with us in our pre-interview was this idea of forward contamination of other mm -hmm. planetary bodies and moons, right, and the concern there. But before we get into that, or maybe in parallel with it, I guess there's this question of, so we understand DNA-based life really well. Uh, even within a DNA-based life form, we see really different behaviors. You had showed us, and there are some images in our slide deck here, of some really strange uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, minerals that uh, bacteria and other sort of simple life forms have learned to uh, use as food sources when they don't have sort of our traditional, you know, surface life. Uh, lots of lots of light and liquid water and, you know, muck to sort of chew up. Um, how confident are you and the rest of the astrobiology community about DNA being the basis of, of most expected life in the solar system? Or do we think that it's entirely possible that something completely foreign could be lurking right in our own solar system on another planetary body? Yeah, d definitely the latter. Um, okay. We have no reason to assume that all life out there uses DNA. Um, DNA, RNA are you know, only two possible realms of the nucleic acids, and there could be many other types of information systems out there. Um, for the audience, in case you, you know, haven't studied your biology or biochemistry in a while, uh, life as we know it, it, it uses DNA and RNA, um, de deoxyribonucleic acid and, and ribonucleic acid, 
as it's information system. We store information about our 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 beings, about our biology inside of the DNA. The DNA mm -hmm. writes the code, the cookbook of how we create the recipes that make make us what we are. Uh, and then we have other things like proteins that can turn into enzymes, and the enzymes are part of the process of of taking the DNA cookbook and, and writing it out into a code you know, that, that life then uses in this long protein chains of amino acids. Um, and so life as we know it relies on the DNA, RNA, protein mixture. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all other life will. There could be other systems of information. There could be other systems that are involved in metabolism, taking energy, um, using energy, uh, building up the bodies of other organisms. There's a lot of things that life does that don't require necessarily the biochemistry that we have. Uh, and so when it comes to DNA, so say, let's just take an example. Let's say we actually find signs of life on Mars. Uh, maybe right now, like per, right now, the Perseverance rover is caching samples that are going to be sent back to Earth for us to analyze in the laboratory. And say we get one of these samples back and we find some Martian life inside of it or life that seems like it did not come from contamination from us. Um, mm -hmm. One of the first things we want to know is, is, is that DNA-based life? If it is DNA-based life, it means two things. One, either DNA is a very common information system, or it means that we share an ancestry with that life. Mm. Either that life originally came from Earth and was sent to Mars on an asteroid, perhaps, or vice versa. Maybe life started on Mars and then came to Earth from Mars. Either way, it could mean we have an ancestry. However, if we find some form of Martian life and it has very similar biochemistry, it also has DNA, it uses very similar enzymes and proteins, it uses similar amino acids. You know, life as we know it relies on, on 20 essential amino acids as well as a whole other range of amino acids. Um, say this Martian life form, if it uses the same biochemistry, that's when you get into the area of issues of contamination, uh, especially in this case, backward contamination. Uh, should we be bringing organisms to Earth, possibly from Mars or another world? If they have the same biochemistry, it could mean that they could outcompete our biochemistry. They could start eating Earth life, uh, and that could be a major issue for us. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of science fiction, and so you know, the Andromeda Strain. Like Michael Crichton was really ahead of his time when he wrote the Andromeda Strain, and it was made into a movie. You know, back in the '70s. Um, you know, of this idea of the, the uh, you know, introduction of an organism, in their case a virus, but an organism that has uh, a similar biochemistry to our own, which could be devastating. Um, right. Different biochemistry, then maybe not so much. Although I can't see how it wouldn't possibly be dangerous because, I mean, maybe you're saying the conditions would be very different and so it just wouldn't thrive. But what if it thrived and there was nothing to compete with it and like an invasive you know. species. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big question. You know, like, should we bring the zebra muscle of Mars back to earth? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So both forward and backward contamination. And I mean, you're making the case that it's a really big deal. It, it's not just uh, bad for science, but it could be bad for sort of life as we know it. I mean, of course it's an extreme, right? You don't assume the first organism you bring back is going to take mm -hmm. over but we don't know that it wouldn't. And so we have to be super, super careful. Do you feel that our current, you know, state-of-the-art biotech uh, science and culture is sufficient to keep organisms from Mars when those samples come back uh, contained? Or do you, do you worry that we should be doing more? That's a great question. I, I personally, I, I think we are very well prepared. 
Um, we don't have the facility yet. We actually still have to build the processing facility with, with the highest level of, of biological safety uh, concerns met um, for these samples. I personally don't think we're going to have an issue with, with any possible contamination, even if we should find signs of potential life. Um, given that these are very close to the surface of Mars, um, I, I personally, I tend more towards the hypothesis that if there are signs of life, they'll be extinct life. They'll be ancient forms of life from long ago. Um, I think if there is extant or currently living life on Mars, I don't think we're going to find it in the first few centimeters of the soil um, of the regolith of Mars. I think we actually have to drill down a lot deeper to get to possible extant life on Mars, personally, given the radiation and, and the environment of the mm -hmm. sur surface of Mars. So I'm not super worried, but I still think, you know, it's one of, the, one, one of those, those really important things where, like, if we do mess it up, then there's no going back on it. And so we, we want to make sure we're doing it right. We want to have a very safe, well-controlled environment. That also means, from the astrobiological standpoint, that we're less likely to worry about our own contamination of Earth life going into the samples and then, you know, convincing us we found alien life. And what we really found was, you know, someone's sandwich from that lunch that day. Um, <laughs> yeah. so we don't want to do that. And so we want to make sure that we are, we are handling the samples very well, keeping them clean and as pristine as possible so that, you know, if there are signs of life, and also just for the chemistry too, just understanding the ancient Martian past is going to be huge when these samples come back. There's so much we can do. I, I mentioned synchrotrons earlier. You, you can't take, you know, this huge, you know, multi-tens of tons of an instrument to Mars with you. I mean, it costs many trillions of dollars. Um, <laughs> we can bring it back here and we can take it into the laboratory and analyze it with these high resolution instruments. And so it's really important that those samples come back. Um, and even though I do think we have to consider the possibility of contamination and of bringing you know, alien life back to Earth, I'm not as concerned. Um, I, I'm definitely one of those who tends more towards the fact that I, I think we need to get out to Mars and collect as many samples as possible right now uh, especially for astrobiology, because we are very likely soon going to send humans to Mars. Um, even though, you know, ever since I was a kid, it's always been 20 years. You know, <laughs> 20 years from now, we'll send people to Mars. And then when I was a teenager, 20 years from now, we'll send people to Mars. In my 20s, 20 years from now, we'll send people to Mars. And in my 30s now, I'm, I'm really hoping we stop saying in 20 years <laughs> and we start saying, like, tomorrow we're going to send people to Mars. Mm -hmm. But I also, I personally think that we want to get the good samples from Mars as soon as possible before yeah. humans get there, as soon as we have humans on the ground on Mars, it's very quickly going to start changing the environment around the habitats, around mm -hmm. the globe of Mars, uh, when it comes to looking for signs of life. Yeah, and there will be yeah. no way with humans there, there's no way that we can avoid bringing our own bacteria and viruses and, and stuff with us, too. Yeah, we, so. can, we, can't, we can't sterilize a human. There, there's yeah. no way. You, you, yeah. you, can't, you can't take all the, all the viruses and bacteria out of your body. Um, we've never seen it happen. We don't know what happened to a human without a microbiome, but yeah, there's so yeah. much research now showing us that all of these organisms who live on us and inside of us, they are an integral part of what we think mm -hmm. of ourselves as an individual. Right. We're really an assemblage. Yeah. We, we really are. But I mean, yeah. I mean, so, just to press the point for, oh, I'm sorry, Eric. Well, I, I, I'll I just take a little different direction. So go ahead. Okay. So just to press this one more stage, I understand you can't sterilize a human. That would be a bad idea anyway. But in terms of the parts of the people who would be exposed to the Martian atmosphere, right, the outsides of suits, um, you know, obviously the, the, all the equipment that gets landed on the surface, I mean, that can be pretty much 
decontaminated to the point that we're, we're confident, or well, that's the question. Are we then confident that there aren't any bacteria or viruses that have hitched a ride or somehow get on the suit during the airlock process and, you know, get out? Now, there, there's actually a realm of research out there on things like leakage rates. Uh, there mm -hmm. is leakage from the International Space Station. The ISS does leak. Um, mm -hmm. Spacesuits, you know, our best underwater um, in, you know, suits, uh, underwater environments we created, like Nemo, they have leakage rates. Um, oh, one of our, our young scholars at Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, um, she hasn't published this work yet, so I can't give too much away, um, but she's done some analyses of the possible leakage rates of an early Martian human habitat. And based on her analysis, it looks like the leakage rates, if they're similar to the ISS, which there's no reason to assume that we could get much better, um, then we would very quickly be contaminating the atmosphere and the environment around the habitat. Um, the same thing for spacesuits. And so not only do we have to worry about you know, the dust and debris that gets on the suits and comes into the habitat, we also have to worry about the, the biological materials from Earth life on the suits that go out into the environment. Yeah. Um, and so those are big questions. But, um, and it's always weird. You talk to people like, no, the ISS can't leak. Um, but that's, just, you know, that's part of, of the, the structure, the process of, of building you know, these environments. We humans did not evolve to live on Mars. We did not evolve to live in space. And so we have to create environments. The ISS is one very large spacesuit, really. It's a space yeah. environment for humans to live inside of. Um, and so we're going to have issues like leakage rates and stuff like that. No matter how much we try to ensure it doesn't happen, there's still going to be some leakage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, So, so Aiden asked, we were talking about Mars, right? And, and we've got to get these good samples of Mars now um, before humans get there. But Aiden wanted to know... Why should we look to Mars? What other locations of solar system are important places to look? You mentioned a couple of them offhand, but maybe you could kind of run down the list and, and why we're interested in these locations. Uh, Aiden, you're my friend. Um, <laughs> so I will say, so I, I've, I've talked about this many times to people before, like where else in our solar system might there be life outside of Earth? Um, and one thing we should say that it's possible that there is no other life in our solar system. Maybe we are alone in our solar system, and it never happened anywhere. Um, based on our current knowledge, that's entirely possible. Now, if I were a gambling person, um, I would throw down everything I own. That in the very early history of the solar system, the most likely other world to have life besides Earth, and I'm talking like, you know, three and a half billion years ago, um, okay. the other likely environment to have life, it wouldn't have been Mars. Um, I'm not actually as big of a fan of Mars having had life uh, when compared to Venus. Mm. Very early ah. on in our solar system, Venus is Earth's twin planet. It's roughly the same size, extremely similar composition. The major difference right. is very early on, the Earth took a glancing blow from another large body that ended up creating our moon. It also gave us a very large core. It changed the chemistry of the crust of our world a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But otherwise, Venus is very similar, and early on, it would have been extremely similar chemically to Earth. And the sun was dimmer, so that so, it wasn't. Yes, that's, that's one issue that we have with Mars. So a lot of people talking about like, how did Mars have surface water? We know it did, um, and so we think Mars had enough of an atmosphere to allow for it to have surface water. But one way uh -huh. to escape this faint young sun issue is that early on, the sun was dimmer and Venus is closer to the sun. So uh, Venus most likely had much better energy input. Uh, there are a lot of great researchers out there, folks like David Grinspoon and his colleagues, 
who've been studying the history of Venus over time have suggested that Venus might have had oceans. Venus might have had continents, much like we have with plate tectonics here on Earth very early on. Venus has undergone two very dramatic uh, planetary-wide problems, though. Venus, one, when we look at its surface, it appears as though the entire surface of Venus at some point, um, maybe 500 million years ago, maybe even uh, longer than that, uh, the entire surface melted. The whole thing was one big molten surface, as far as we can tell. Um, mm -hmm. And then along with that, Venus has undergone, most likely over a very long scale of eons, um, a runaway greenhouse effect. So you know, nowadays, the surface of Venus is 450 degrees Celsius. I forget what that is in Fahrenheit. Um, but it's, it's 92 times the surface pressure that we have here at Earth. It rains sulfuric acid, but before the rain can even hit the ground, it evaporates and goes back up again. Um, so the surface of Venus now appears like a hellscape. But honestly, you know, billions of years ago, Venus might have been the best contender for life outside of the Earth and our solar system. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my, my first answer to Aiden's question. But then when it comes to looking right now, um, again, people are actually considering, could there be life in Venus's atmosphere? There's a place 51 kilometers up roughly in Venus's atmosphere where the pressure and the temperature are very similar to sea level here on Earth. It's very clement, as we say. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe there is phosphine and maybe there is some biological process going on. Um, but it seems kind of like a long shot. And so outside of things like Venus in the past, Mars now, um, there are many other worlds we're considering. One of my own favorites is Europa. Uh, it's one of the, the moons of Jupiter. It's one of the Galilean moons, one of the very mm -hmm. first four moons that Galileo Galilei saw with his telescope in 1609. When he looked at Jupiter, he saw these four little points of light moving around Jupiter. And at first he thought they were stars. He called them Medician stars after the, the family who was funding his research. And then he realized they were actually going around Jupiter. He was the first human being to have definitive evidence that, that things orbited around other worlds besides our own. Um, he got into a lot of trouble for that as well, but <laughs> it was a very in, important discovery. And Europa was one of those first worlds. It's roughly the same size as our own moon. Um, when you look at it in pictures, you can see this icy surface covered in cracks called Linnea. Um, these cracks, uh, they show kind of like the shifting, almost like icebergs, when icebergs crack and then refreeze. You can see how the, the lines kind of shift off like faults in the rock here on Earth. Uh, we now know that, that the, the icy surface of Europa, it might be something like 10 kilometers thick of ice. That's roughly six, six miles or so of ice. Uh, and then down below that is a liquid water ocean that may be one of the most voluminous oceans in our entire solar system. Uh, it certainly would have more liquid water than we do in all of the oceans of the Earth. Uh, and again, this is just you know a, a moon roughly the same size as our moon, uh, and so that leaves a lot of real estate for possible living processes, a biosphere inside of that ocean. Um, there's a great researcher at NASA JPL named Kevin Hand, who, along with others who study these ocean worlds, is trying to understand you know how can we look for possible signs of life from that ocean by looking at the surface of Europa. Uh, when Europa Clipper, this mission we're launching hopefully next year in 2024. When it gets out to the Jovian system and starts looking at the surface of Europa, are there any signs chemically that we can look at inside of those cracks? Um, if any of that fluid from the ocean came up and brought signs of life with it, what are we looking for? And so that's pretty cool. There's, there's another really awesome world too called Enceladus. Uh, Enceladus is a very small moon, much smaller than our moon, much smaller than Europa. Uh, it orbits around Saturn. And when we launched the Cassini spacecraft, 
Um, it had the Huygens landed that landed on Titan. Uh, Cassini got out to the Saturnian system and was was learning more about the, the moons of Saturn and Saturn's rings and their history. And we made this discovery that there is liquid water erupting from these giant plumes from the southern hemisphere of Enceladus, uh, from this region we call the Tiger Stripes. Uh, so with Enceladus, not only do we know it has a subsurface ocean, we also have some chemical signs there could be hydrothermal activity in that ocean. And then the fluid from that ocean itself is erupting into space. It's just there for us to go fly through and measure and look for stuff. Um, right. Cassini, we flew through it, but you know we, we did not send the Cassini spacecraft to Saturn knowing that there were plumes of water that could have signs of life. And so it didn't have an instrument that really could look for more advanced biological molecules. Mm -hmm. It was able to look at kind of some of the smaller, uh, the smaller molecules, you know, uh, atoms that were coming out in these plumes. And so if we send other missions back, um, there's some really cool you know, concept designs for an Enceladus life finder or elf that could look for signs of life uh, in the plumes or near the surface of Enceladus. Now, my friend Morgan Cable at JPL, she has a really cool idea she's developed along with Kaylin Carpenter. Um, they call them eels. Um, they're these robots that could basically like, like long eel-like robots could, could meander and corkscrew their way down inside the plumes of Enceladus to look for possible yeah. signs of life in the chemistry of those plumes, which is really cool. Um, and with our, our most recent decadal survey, uh, so for the audience, uh, uh, the National Academies of Science, Mathematics, and Engineering um, they uh, have these things called decadal surveys for different realms of science and engineering, uh, where every decade they poll the community of researchers um, from different government organizations and research institutions, and they basically say, what do, you know, what do we as a community think we should do in the next decade of research? Um, and one thing that we have in the current decadal survey for planetary science and astrobiology is to send an Orbilander to Enceladus. Uh, something to orbit as well as land, um, either in or near those plumes on Enceladus. Um, and so that'd be a, a really cool mission, whatever that ends up being. I'm kind of leaning towards the eels. I think they're very cool, but there's lots of ways that we can get in there and, and study the chemistry. Um, and so I know this has been a very long answer, Aiden, but back to your question, there's also many other worlds that could be possible signs, but if I had to put money down, again, you know, Venus and Mars are great, but also Europa and Enceladus, there, there are some other places to look at as well. Well, I know from the point of view of people who who like exploring planets and, and moons in the solar system, it sure gives us plenty of reasons to send new instruments there, you know, and each time that I guess the mission parameters change because we've learned something from the last one. Hopefully we're learning to build instruments that are a little cheaper so that maybe we can do this more often, cross fingers, right? Launch costs coming down, all of that better instrumentation. But uh, yeah, it sounds like there's a, a huge amount left to do. Um, Absolutely. We also have the issue, too, that um, to get things flight ready um, through <laughs> NASA or ESA, um, through these government agencies that launch things to space, it can take a long time to get an instrument from you know concept and design and development to actual flight readiness and, and for us to allow it to go into space. And so you know we have a, a selection of instruments that are great for looking for life, but only a small subset of them have actually flown already and been proven. And so, you know, of these other instruments, there are some that, you know, we'd love to see go into space and, and go do things, but we really do need, you know, more technological development, more people working in the, the aerospace engineering realm and, and mechanical, electrical engineering to really help develop and design 
these instruments and get them through the flight readiness process and get them out there. All right. Well, you hear that, everyone listening. You know, let's let's make more instruments flight uh, flight worthy faster. I'm not quite sure how to do that, but I know there's some creative <laughs> creative thinking around that. Um, well, we're we're starting to uh, get to the top of our hour here. So, uh, Eric, are there any other questions that we should pull from the listeners? Or, gosh, we've got a ton of them today. Oh, you're on mute there sorry about that yeah we've got we've got that big one from 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 aiden and the, you know we appreciate the listeners piping in but um i did want to ask a little bit about <laughs> excuse me blue marble space uh, the organization you run and particularly the internship uh program that you direct maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and, and what your goals are there no thank you so much for that question eric um so i do work for blue marble space uh our ceo sanjoy Sam. Um, had this this vision back in 2009 um, of what would it mean if our astronauts, rather than taking the flag of the U.S. or the flag of China or Russia or some other country, um, what if instead of taking the flags of other countries in the space, if they had one flag to represent all of us together as a planet? And from that you know, really intriguing first principles idea, it, it took him into the realm of launching his own company called Blue Marble Space, um, which itself is kind of an umbrella nonprofit. Um, a lot of our focus is on, you know, on Earth, sustainability, space exploration, astrobiology, the future. Um, within Blue Marble Space, one of our initiatives is our research institution. Uh, that's the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, for which I'm also a research investigator. Um, and through BMSIS, uh, we have 72 affiliated research scientists now in the organization. Uh, we have well over 50 visiting scholars at various levels of undergraduate, graduate school, uh, postdocs, uh, working for us on all these various projects that we're doing. Um, we have researchers working in all kinds of realms of looking for alien life, better understanding life on Earth, uh, looking for life in the oceans. Um, there's a lot of research going on through, through the people at BMSIS. Uh, I'm very fortunate, though, that I'm now the director of our online internship that takes place every summer uh, from the 1st of June to the end of August. It's called the Young Scientist Program, even though it's really applicable to anyone in the early career phase of science and engineering who needs an online internship, a remote internship, and wants to work with our, us on, on various projects. We've had projects about um, astronaut health on the ISS, uh, ionizing radiation on Mars and how that affects humans and other life. Uh, I, I've had projects on science communication, how to write about science. Um, we have a project through the Center for Life Detection at NASA Ames where you help to kind of understand the inventory of biosignatures that are out there. Um, there are lots of projects that involve bioinformatics, programming, astrophysics, biochemistry, geology. Um, so young undergraduate students, um, th those people who finished undergrad but haven't started master's degrees or PhDs yet, uh, are eligible mm -hmm. to apply. And honestly, I think personally, and I'm a little biased, but I personally think it's the best internship on the entire planet. Uh, <laughs> those who take part in our internship, not only do they do a research project with us, but they also then learn about science communication. Uh, they take a course in moral philosophy. Uh, they learn about how we apply ethical frameworks from philosophy to our understanding mm -hmm. of bigger issues, like uh, should we be whaling for food? Um, should we be genetically engineering humans to live on Mars? Um, you know, these big ethical questions that touch on science and society together. Um, because with this program, we're not just trying to teach the next generation of scientists and engineers, 
um, about how to do research, we also want them to become better global citizens. Uh, this past summer, for the first time, we paired up with an organization called Kaya Ulu that brings uh, elders and indigenous elders uh, from different tribes to speak to the students and talk about indigenous knowledge and how indigenous knowledge and science, how they work together and how we as a community can work together through both lenses, through modern science as well as modern indigenous knowledge um, to better understand our place in the universe. And so honestly, I'm, I'm really happy that this program has evolved and grown and given such remarkable opportunities for, for the young uh, and early career people out there who've taken part in the program. Yeah, it really does sound like an amazingly, you know, yeah. diverse and forward-looking uh, internship and a great vehicle to get young people who are already excited about this topic just just mm -hmm. right in the driver's seat and hopefully launching a lot of, uh, you know, bright careers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've had over 300 students now over time have taken part in the program. Uh, last summer, we had 66 interns in the program working on 24 different projects. Uh, and honestly, I, I'm at that point now where I've been involved for several years now. And so now I've had students from the past summers come back and work for me on different projects, uh, work with other people in different projects. Um, just, just, just this morning, one of our, one of our past uh, students from this past summer, um, he's now starting his graduate studies in Svalbard um, at the highest, the, 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 the northernmost university on the planet. Um, he's from India. And so he's never experienced a winter where it's basically night all the time. And so he's asking questions, you know, like, hey, how do I live in this environment where the sun never rises? Um, you know, we have these young people, these early career people who are venturing out now into their careers. And it's just, it's humbling for me to have a chance to just be, to be one small stepping stone along their career pathways to, to making remarkable uh, advancements for all of us. Definitely preparing the next generation. Yeah, I think you're doing a lot, Graham. That's, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great way to get, um, you know, help get more instruments flight ready too. you know, the more <laughs> exactly engineers and scientists we have working on this, you know, the closer we can get to answering some of these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll tack on to that a little bit, too. You know, our, our internship program is primarily aimed at science, um, technology, engineering, mathematics, the STEM realm. Um, but I do have a project focused on science communication. Um, I've had students in the past who are undergrads studying things like journalism or communication, or literature, or philosophy, uh, who've been part of this project in the past. And when it comes to the realm of astrobiology, like I mentioned earlier, astrobiology is about the human endeavor. We've been, for many millennia now, have been asking, why are we here? What are we? Is there something else? You know, what, what is this weird thing that we call the universe that we live inside of? And it requires a lot more than just STEM uh, realm uh, experience. And learning, we, we need people who are studying law to help us explore the law of how we send humans to space and how we settle space. We need people involved in business to help us develop the business mm -hmm. and the infrastructure of not just low Earth orbit and, and, and near Earth. We need, we need space infrastructure throughout the solar system and, and one day throughout the galaxy. Um, we need people involved in all these walks of life, philosophy, theater, culture. Um, for one more short story, one of my favorite episodes of the show Star Trek The Next Generation um, came out back in the 19, late 1980s, early 90s. Uh, there's an episode in the second season called Samaritan Snare, where this captain of the Starship Enterprise named Picard and this young man named Wesley Crusher are flying together to this star base. This young man's going to take an exam to see if he can go into Starfleet Academy. Mm -hmm. And the captain says, you know, did you read this book of philosophy I gave you? And the young man's like, you know, I don't think this is this, or a book of poetry. I don't think this poetry is going to be on my exams. 
Uh, and the captain says, the most important things never are. And he looks mm. out at the stars in front of them, and he says, you know, anyone can learn the mechanics of piloting a starship, but, you know, learn about philosophy, art, history, and all of this will make sense. And it's one of the greatest arguments for a liberal arts education I've ever heard. Yeah. Because, you know, whatever you specialize in life, if you're a musician or an artist or a lawyer, a business person, a scientist, an engineer, whatever you do, we have to have the whole cumulative understanding mm -hmm. of each other. We have to work together and share this experience. And so by learning about all these other walks of life, these other ways of being, it really helps us to better frame this question of why are we here? Yeah. Well, that's, Beautiful. I think, a wonderful, wonderful quote, wonderful way to wrap up this this episode. So, Graham, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, thank you, everyone who joined uh, uh, online or listening to this uh, when it's released. Um, for anyone out there, if you've got dis uh, discussion topics you'd like us to look at, people we should uh, think about interviewing or, or just want to be part of the conversation, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Our Future Space. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, our, at Our Future in Space. And then, of course, you can always email us, ourfutureinspace at orbitalassembly.com. And if you like what we're doing at Orbital Assembly and would like to learn about ways to maybe contribute in other ways, feel free to reach out to info at orbitalassembly.com. Uh, thank you, Graham, once more for being with us today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, until next time, be well, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. This program represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Orbital Assembly Corporation, nor the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The mere appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Orbital Assembly Corporation or its affiliates. Our Future in Space. Copyright 2022 Orbital Assembly Corporation. Hosts, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt. This program represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Above Space, nor the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Above Space, nor its affiliates.